We're going to look at a couple of texts this morning, so let's take our Bibles and turn first to Genesis chapter 18. Each of these passages this morning is pretty familiar to us uh, because we've studied them in some context before. So we're just going to highlight uh, a couple verses and then talk about them as they relate to our study. I worked through a lot of different texts and ideas this week as I was seeking the Lord and asking Him uh, what to speak about this morning, but the Lord kept bringing me back to this topic, and I know for sure that it's something that all of us struggle with and need some victory in. Uh, I, I thought all week, because I experienced it a couple times, have you ever had one of those days where just from the outset, everything and everyone seems to frustrate you? Like, like it's just like it's preordained for the day that you're just going to be irritated all day. Uh, from the moment you wake up till the moment the day ends and you finally throw yourself down on the pillow with a great sigh, it's like everything is off. Everybody bugs you. Every situation bugs you. Responsibilities bug you. And if it wasn't enough, uh, nothing seems to go right. Nothing's easy. I, I don't know if you've had those kind of days. I had a couple of those days this week, including yesterday. Everybody just kind of woke up tired, and it seemed like we were all dealing with a lot of stuff, and, and it's been piling up, and we were all kind of stressed to try to get things done on time, and, and I was kind of wrestling with that, and then I, I had to go out and run some errands as I was driving. I got behind three different people who were driving 10 miles under the limit, in a 35 zone, by the way. And the reason those joyful people were driving 10 miles under the limit is because they were all looking at their cell phones. So you know me by now how much joy that brings and sanctification to my heart. But that was okay because as I looked out the windshield, I saw tiny flurries on May 14th in the great state of Wisconsin. Then it got worse. My phone's been acting up, so um, I had sent away for a new battery. I got the new battery in the mail, and then I went on YouTube, and I watched the video about how to take my phone apart. You know where this is going. I discovered that this battery that I had received, which was exactly the model it was supposed to be, did not fit. So then I tried to put my cell back together, and now the power button didn't work. So I monkeyed with that for a while, muttering under my breath, and I finally got the power button to work. The, the down, the, the lower volume button still is, is not working. But when I turned my phone back on, I found out that it was in safe mode. I don't know if you've ever messed with safe mode, but I'm not a fan of safe mode. So I called my friendly Verizon representative, and I spent an hour with a very, very helpful guy who still couldn't solve my problem. But we made some progress, and it's just as we were really starting to make some headway, the call got disconnected. My phone is still in safe mode. It was that kind of day. Now, I hate being frustrated, and I hate it when people are frustrated with me. And it's easy on those kinds of days to kind of get down and discouraged, especially when it's gray and cold for the 186th straight day. And, and, and the problem is that those little frustrations, does anybody want to just affirm me that you know what I'm talking about and yeah, you've done this? Okay, good. I know I'm not alone. That's, that's very helpful because I'd get frustrated if I was alone. Those, those tiny little frustrations kind of add up, don't they? And each one individually doesn't weigh that much. 
But when they start to pile up on top of each other, all of a sudden it gets to get very collectively heavy. And when it gets heavy and they aren't kind of regularly released or, or kind of cleared out of our mind, they start to wear us down. And that not only creates a physical and emotional and sometimes relational toll, but, but a spiritual one too. Especially a spiritual one, because the devil loves to exploit what's going on in our personal life and make that a spiritual issue. And when our heart and mind are not perfectly aligned with the Lord in those times, when we're not really living by the Spirit, as we've studied over the last five or six weeks, those little frustrations then start to morph into bigger ones. And the bigger frustrations then latch themselves onto these kind of morphed little frustrations, which is a good name for a band. And the enemy then now conveniently puts more obstacles into our path to really irritate us. And instead of handling that emotionally, instead of being sanctified in how we're thinking spiritually, now the whole situation escalates into a complete mess. And if our spirit is not clear and pure during those times, we, we now eventually collapse under the weight of the frustrations, and the results of that aren't pretty. We get angry, and we get hostile, and we uh, sabotage relationships. We say something we know we shouldn't, words that we can't pull back. And we get irritated and we walk around with kind of a dour look on our face. And there's emotional turmoil that's taking place. And sometimes, often, that will then evolve into, into sin. And the worst aspect of it is that we are, are lacking the spiritual resilience at that point and the spiritual perspective at that point. So instead of crying out to the Lord, instead of calling on the name of the Lord, my God is able, in, instead of that, we now start to react in our flesh. Instead of reacting and, and saying, Lord, you're faithful and I'm having a really lousy day and I need your help. I need you to change my heart and change my mind and, and, and quell this anger and this hostility and this frustration that's building in me and I, I know that's not going to lead to the right place. So, Lord, give me wisdom and give me strength and give me sufficiency. Instead of doing that, our, our inclination, because the flesh is still strong even though it's been defeated, we now respond in the flesh. And that not only creates some kind of a personal crisis, but even more dangerously, it steals our faith and it leads us to disobey the Lord. So we want to look very quickly this morning, because time is short. We want to look at three people who all reach this point. And I want you to really, if you don't normally do this, I want you to take some notes this morning, because there's a lot here that we can just kind of apply to our lives, and I think it'll be very helpful. Holy Spirit, help us now as we study your word. Three people in the history of Christianity, these three names really stand out. When I say who their names are, you'll, you'll know them. They're people that God used in awesome ways, even miraculous ways, ways beyond what we can understand. They really set a standard when we look at people in Scripture for trusting the Lord and serving the Lord. If we trusted and served the Lord like they do, we'd be thrilled. So they're standout people, and yet each of them reached a very dangerous point of frustration that the Lord responded to, and he does it very graciously because God is a gracious God. But, but they, hit, they hit their point. They, they hit the point where they're like, all right, it's done. I'm, I'm through. I'm finished. I can't do it anymore. And I really believe we can learn from that this morning because in each case, we're going to look at the reasons for 
and kind of the reaction to the frustration. And then we're going to see how the Lord instructed them and instructs us to deal with it. And then at the end, in a few minutes, we're going to just establish some spiritual principles on how to diffuse our frustration and honor the Lord. So we're going to read one verse from each text, okay? We're going to start in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12. In just a minute, we're going to roll over to 1 Kings 19. But again, write some things down. The Lord is going to impress our hearts with some things this morning. And let's uh, really go through that and allow Him to speak to us. Just one verse, and then I'll give you some context. Verse 12, chapter 18 of Genesis. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now turn over to 1 Kings chapter 19. We don't usually study like this, but this morning's a little different. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 14. 1 Kings 19, 14. Thank you for turning. Then Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. All right, one more text, 2 Timothy chapter 1, right at the end of your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 1. The second book that Paul wrote to this young pastor who was kind of his protege. Paul was a mentor to him. I love the book of 2 Timothy. If you haven't studied this book recently, I encourage you, make it your study this week. It It is describing the times we live in. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and let's look at verse 4. Paul says, I'm longing to see you. Even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Now, I know those are just little snippets of the text, and I'll explain what's happening in the text in a moment. But in each of these situations, let's be very clear. These people love the Lord. They trusted the Lord. They served the Lord. They followed the Lord. Each of them had been called into a unique place of service in which they were utilized in powerful ways. But that did not change the fact that they became very strongly frustrated with their situation and actually came to the point of questioning the Lord's leading and the Lord's methods. Now hear that again. These people were loving the Lord, faithful to the Lord, trusting the Lord, serving the Lord, walking with the Lord, following the Lord in every way. But they came to a point where they questioned the Lord's leading and questioned the Lord's method. And in two of the cases, at least, they went to the extreme of saying, I quit. I'm done serving the Lord. I'm done doing what I'm doing. And and I'm finished. Now, it's important to see those realities, that they loved and served the Lord, uh, and that they came to a point of, of great frustration and great personal and spiritual crisis. Now, by looking at these extreme examples, because hopefully we don't ever come to this place, but by looking at those extreme examples, I hope that will encourage us that, that much of our problems, in fact, most of the problems we're going to face this week, are not going to get to this level. And that will also be encouraged by how gracious and loving and patient the Lord is in teaching us a better way. Now, keep your finger here, 2 Timothy 1. Turn back 
all the way back to where we started in Genesis chapter 18 because we want to talk through Sarah's situation for a moment. You guys know it, so I don't need to give you a lot of background, but, but in case you're not as familiar with it, let me just explain it quickly. Uh, Abraham and Sarah had not been able to have children, and they're now in their 90s. The reality of, of ever having kids really is, is long gone. But there's another factor in play. This, they're not just your average couple. God in chapter 12 had made a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant was unconditional. There was nothing Abraham had to do for it to be fulfilled. God just said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you so many descendants that they'll be like the stars in heaven and the sands of the sea. You won't even be able to count them. So I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to watch over your people, and, and I'm going to have my hand on you. Then in chapter 15, God confirms that covenant again, and he affirms to them again that you're going to have a son. The problem is Sarah panicked. And when she panicked, she said to Abraham, look, I'm too old. I know what God said, but it's not going to happen through me. So go to my servant, who's much younger, and have a child with her, and that will be better. Now, by doing that, it created huge family conflict, and it created resentment. More than that, it created the situation that we have today in the Middle East because the Jews and the Arabs are still fighting each other thousands and thousands of years later because of what happens in chapter 16 and chapter 17 of Genesis. So Sarah panics. The Lord gave an unshakable promise, but Sarah doubted. And, and, and then the Lord in chapter 18, and that's where we read from, so look at that chapter for a moment. The Lord himself comes to their tent. And the Lord comes to tell them that within a year, this is in verse 10, within a year, Sarah's going to have a son. He'll be the son of the covenant, not the one that Abraham with, had with Hagar, but Sarah herself is going to have a child. Now, Sarah's listening behind the door. And when she hears what the Lord says directly to Abraham, she kind of laughs within herself like, <laughs> are you kidding me? She doesn't say it out loud. It's just internal. And in laughing, Sarah is showing that she doesn't believe. Now granted, the plan is kind of unthinkable. That she in her 90s and her husband is close to 100, that they're going to have a child. So she has this sarcastic internal response within her that, that just kind of is a, is a product maybe of the frustration that had been built up within her. And I think there were three struggles. There are going to be three struggles for each person we look at. I think there were three struggles that annoyed her. Three, three frustrations that she was bearing that she hadn't released. One was she was irritated about her physical limitation. She was hurt, frustrated, angry, irritated that she couldn't have a child of her own. And then when Abraham goes to Hagar and they immediately have a child, now she knows the problem's her and she's even more hurt and unfulfilled. And then maybe second, she might have been ticked off at Abraham that he took her up on her misguided suggestion. Uh, you know, she maybe in just the moment said, well, just go to Hagar. And, and Abraham didn't say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. We're going to follow the promise of God. Abraham does it. And then maybe she regrets the suggestion and is irritated with him that, that, that now there's conflict and Abraham's now had another child. And certainly on some level, third, she's frustrated with the Lord. 
She's unable to see his plan. She's unwilling to see his plan. She's clearly not trusting him. She's clearly not yielding to him. And now Jesus himself, really, the presence of God, comes and says, this is what's going to happen. And internally, she laughs at the promise. See, Sarah had a physical problem, but more than anything, she had a spiritual problem. And I believe what the Lord wants to teach us through her is that we should not make rash, poor decisions to try to control what's out of our control. So many times in my life, I've reacted and made a decision based on what I think is right rather than waiting on the Lord. Anytime you wait on the Lord, you're not going to be disappointed. It's hard, though, if you're impatient like me, right? Because you just want immediate answers. Come on, Lord, show me. I want an answer. And when he doesn't do that, and when God didn't fulfill it maybe as quickly as Sarah wanted, she said, well, let's develop a different plan. That never goes well. So Sarah has a spiritual problem. She needed to hear the Lord's word. It's right here in the text, verse 14, that nothing is too difficult with the Lord. And combined with God's unwavering love and God's unwavering faithfulness, that gives us every reason to trust him completely. Okay, so Sarah's got a physical, spiritual problem. Now let's turn back over to 1 Kings 18 and look at Elijah. Elijah had seen the hand of the Lord so clearly on him all throughout the years. He had the calling of God. God had provided for him. God had given him the power when they were up on Mount Carmel. Before that, to stop the rain and then to feed Elijah during the drought. And he had made provision for the widow at Zarephath that's earlier in the text. And then one chapter before the text we just read, they go up on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal are on one side and Elijah's by himself on the other. And Ahab's sitting there with his lovely bride Jezebel. And he says to the prophets of Baal, call down fire from heaven. Eat up the sacrifice. Nothing for six hours. Elijah pours water all over the altar, and then he says, God, show them your God. Immediately, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, eats the stones, licks up the water, and everybody says, that's God. Now, you would think, after such a tremendous victory, that Elijah would know that God's power and God's authority and God's, God's provision has, has now been visibly manifest, that God has blessed him in unique ways above any other prophet. To that point, so you would think Elijah, knowing that he has the power of God behind him, that that nothing and no one would intimidate him. But that's not the case. Because Queen Jezebel puts out a hit on him. And as soon as the contrast contract is set, right after the contest is won and the rain begins, Elijah becomes very uh, undaunted by the threat, uh, or, or daunted by the threat, I guess would be the right word. So he runs. He doesn't just run for a day. He runs for 40 days. He goes deep, 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 deep into the wilderness. And he eventually ends up at a cave. And there he hides and he says to the Lord, I'm through. I'm done. Can't do it anymore. He's just had a huge victory on Mount Carmel. He's seen fire come down from heaven. He's seen the people say, that's the Lord. And yet 40 days later, Elijah's hiding in a cave. And he says, God, I'm finished. Put me to death. Because like Sarah, there were three struggles that caused his frustration. And some of these we may relate to. For one thing, he was undoubtedly angry that while he had been zealous for the Lord, the nation was spiritually dry. Have you felt that? You look around in our country 
and you go, really, this is the choices? This, this is where we're headed as a country? And all the social junk that's going on with Target and the LGBT and all that kind of stuff, and, and, and the dramatic and very fast shift in what is normal and what is acceptable and what we have to yield to as part of living in this country. Now that's all taking place. And you go, Lord, I'm frustrated. I see it in Facebook posts. I see it when people say, how can we be going this way? And, 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 everything. and we're so irritated that we're trying to stand for the Lord, but the nation's spiritually dry. That's what Elijah felt. And he's burned out. He's tired. He's got no help with ministry. He says in verse 14, look, I'm the only one left. And then there's a second frustration as he's uh, standing on Carmel. He's all alone. There's huge pressure that he's the only prophet representing the Lord, that the people are, are completely abandoned to Baal, and, and that he's the only one that actually loves the Lord. Maybe you feel that right now. Maybe you're in a family where you're the only believer. Maybe you're in a work situation where it's just nasty and you're not even looking forward to going to work tomorrow because you know the environment that's going to be around you. And how are you going to stand for the Lord and speak the gospel and, and represent Him and keep your morals around the people that you're around? Or maybe you're in a marriage where, where you're unequally yoked and your, your wife or husband, they don't love the Lord. They want nothing to do. They don't want to come to church. Why are you going to church again? And you feel like you're standing alone. That was Elijah's second problem. But he's also emotionally and spiritually strung out. Now he faces this threat to his life, and I believe that his actions and his response to the Lord, he says it twice. God says, why are you here? I'm here because I've been zealous for the Lord, and I'm the only one, and now I just can't handle it anymore. I want you to take my life. And then God reacts in nature again, and he says, Elijah, why are you here? And I really believe that the second time Elijah says the exact same words, I think there's some edge and some attitude behind it. I already told you once. I'm here because I'm zealous for you. And I'm alone. And I'm tired. And they put a hit on my life. And Lord, I'm done. I want you to take my life now. See, he's frustrated with the Lord. Why would a prophet be frustrated with the Lord? Well, he feels abandoned and alone and unprotected. It was an emotional problem, but even more, it was a spiritual problem. And the Lord, and the Lord says this to us, reminds Elijah about the powerful victories. And he says, I'm always present with you. What's your problem? You don't see what's going on. Your perspective is so limited. Listen, when you get emotionally strung out, and when I get emotionally strung out and we're, we're spiritually off, we need to have a different perspective because God is faithful and God is present and he's our very present help in time of trouble. And he will never leave us and never forsake us. And when we call on his name, he will answer. And his Holy Spirit indwells us and fills us. And we have his word to teach us. And we have the body to strengthen us. What more do we need? But we get so emotionally worked up. Well, Lord, I'm doing my best and nobody else cares. No, no, don't get to that place. God says, look at all the victories you've had. Look at how I provided for you. Now, Elijah, here's something you don't know. There are a bunch of people that have never bowed to Baal. Go find them and get to work. Quit your complaining. If God says quit your complaining, this is the time when he says it. 
quit your griping. Stop being so emotionally distraught and get busy serving me. I know that sounds like a harsh word, but that's a gracious word. God could wipe us out. But he's gracious and compassionate and he's slow to anger and he's rich in love. So we've got Elijah, all right? So Sarah's distraught physically and spiritually. Elijah's distraught emotionally and spiritually. Now turn back over to 2 Timothy. Because Timothy basically needed to hear the same message that Elijah heard. Timothy was the one, just by background, that Paul had placed as the pastor at the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very powerful and wealthy city. It had a... a, a a cove on one side, water on one side, and a harbor, and then it had a highway on the other side. So it was a very powerful trade city, very wealthy, very influential. There was a temple that was known throughout the world to the goddess Artemis, and she had, uh, in in the Ephesians thinking, blessed the city and had her hand on the city. So there's powerful wealth, there's influence, there's false worship, There's all kinds of things going on. And Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus and he says, you're going to lead the church there. Well, from the outset, Timothy is feeling angst. First reason is he's getting hammered within his church for a number of reasons. There are false teachers that rise up, they become very influential, and and he's getting no approval from the body. He feels very out of place. He feels... Uh, like he's getting ridiculed for his youth and his inexperience, and the enemy's hitting him so hard that he's being dissuaded from serving. There's no question that he's tired. He looks around the church in Ephesus. He doesn't see a lot of fruit, and he goes far past the normal stresses that you face in full-time ministry. Now he's so burned out and so overwhelmed and so just done with it all that he says to Paul, I'm ready to quit. There's a letter that he writes between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy where we have to assume, based on Paul's writing, that he says, I'm done. I'm tapping out. I'm I'm finished. This church is crazy. This town is crazy. I don't want to do this. I'm inexperienced. People don't take me seriously. I have no authority. I'm done. The real problem was that he was frustrated with the Lord on some level to the point that he questions his calling and why the Lord had put him in Ephesus. And then he says, uh, he, he looks at Paul, who has all kinds of success, and he looks at himself and he says, I don't have any success, which is the great uh, torture of so many people in ministry, which is why 1,800 pastors quit every month. And he looks at the success of others, and he looks at his own success, and he says, I can't do this anymore. See, Timothy is dealing with a relational problem because of the struggles within his church. But again, the problem is not relational. The problem is what? Tell me. Spiritual. It's spiritual. And the Lord gives him, and I want you to see, and this is another great text. Look at verse 6, because here's the, the message that the Lord gives to him and to us. And it's a strong exhortation. Kindle afresh God's gift in you. Know that God has given us a spirit of power and love and self-discipline, not timidity, not frustration, not irritation, not I can't do it anymore. God's given us power and love. So all through the next chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, Paul basically says to him, be strong and courageous and get to the work of ministry because there's a lot more to be done. It's pretty much the same message that God gave to Elijah. 
So Sarah's physically and spiritually distraught. Elijah is emotionally and physically distraught. Timothy is relationally and spiritually distraught. And they all reach the point of just saying, I can't do it. Now, all of those things that we just looked at briefly will will probably exceed the annoyances that we face this week. Somebody driving 25 miles an hour in a 35 while talking on their cell phone is not the same problem as facing a whole nation that denies God. I need to deal with that, okay? You need to pray for me. I need to deal with that because I'm really frustrated and I'm honking a lot and I'm praying it's not any of you. But if it is, get off your phone. But that annoyance, right? How many know that's minor? But it's helpful to see the similarities because they relate to us spiritually. Now, before we see what the Lord wants to teach us about that, let's ask a couple questions. Because when we're in frustrating situations, and if you're taking notes, I definitely want you to write these down. When we're in frustrating situations, we need to take a self-assessment first. The enemy never wants us to do that. The enemy never wants us to look internally and say, I wonder if I'm the problem. He always wants us to blame get annoyed, react in, 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 in an ungodly way, and more than anything, the enemy wants us to blame the Lord. So, let's frustrate him. Rather than him frustrating us, let's frustrate him. And let's ask ourselves three questions. Number one question, am I the cause of the problem? If there's frustration, is it my fault? Because our innate inclination is to blame other people when we're annoyed instead of looking at what we might have done to cause the problem. In other words, if, if, if uh, uh, somebody's irritated with us because we haven't gotten a project done, instead of deferring, uh, defending how little time we have and getting angry that they put the project on us in the first place and that they have unrealistic expectations of time and quality and, and that they're not helping us, they're depending on us to do it. Instead of all that, maybe we should own the fact that we didn't do what we said we were going to do. Instead of blaming them, well, you shouldn't have put that on me and I don't have time and da-da-da-da. Instead, we should just say, you know what, I need to take responsibility because taking responsibility not only incites us to act, but it quickly diffuses the conflict. I do this all the time in marriage counseling. When I have people that are fighting and arguing with each other, I say, all right, everybody stop for a moment. For the next 10 minutes, I don't want you to say another negative thing about the other person. I only want you to tell me what you're doing that's causing a problem. The first words out of their mouth is, well, let me tell you what he's doing. Let's review the instructions again. For the next 10 minutes, I don't want you to say one thing about that person. I only want you to say what you are doing. We don't love to take responsibility for what we're doing to cause the problem, do we? Come on, how many know that's true? That's true. In marriage, if Julie's irritated with me about something, what do I do? I defend myself with a little attitude like, get off my back. But there's truth in what she's saying. And instead of irritating her and frustrating her more, what do I need to do? I need to take responsibility. Yes, you're right. I did that or I didn't do that. So question one, am I the cause of the problem? Question two, 
How much of my frustration, oh, I hate this question, how much of my frustration is because I'm not getting my way? Oh, Lord, help us. How much of my frustration is because I'm not getting my way? I think if we honestly assess this, we will find that 90% of the time or more, we are irritated because we're not getting or experiencing what we want to get or experience. I'm frustrated with the person in front of me who's driving 25 on the phone because I want to get to the store faster. It's all about me. Get out of my way. Get off your phone. Why are you driving dangerously? Why are you irritating me? I have places to go. Do you not understand that the left lane is not the slow lane? Do you not get that? Do you not understand there are laws about not texting and driving? There are commercials on TV that tell you, don't text and drive. Got to check my Instagram. Yeah, I know. Thank you, brother. But you know what? I don't understand what's going on in that person's life. I find that I never honk at anybody going into a hospital. Why? Because that's rude. I don't know what's going on. That person's going to the hospital. That can't be good. And yet, I will honk at somebody on the freeway that's on their phone. But what do I know? Maybe the person at the hospital is just going there to pick up a prescription. Maybe the person who's texting on the highway is getting really awful news. What do I know? It's all about me. We need to identify why we're frustrated. And that's hard because that requires us to look at us. Question number three, two-part question. What weaknesses is the devil trying to exploit? What weaknesses is the devil trying to exploit? And what ground is he trying to win back? Because as we saw with Sarah and Elijah and Timothy, the battleground is always, 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 always spiritual first. There is always something he is doing to continuously and aggressively and persistently go after our faith to get us to question the Lord's leading, to question, uh, to, to cause us to, to doubt God's provision, to, to get us to have fear about God's leading. And he'll pressure us and pressure us and pressure us to compromise spiritually and to lust after our vices and to satisfy ourselves even emotionally and to surround us with people that will get us to try to give in spiritually. That's how the enemy works. He has no self-interest for us in mind. He only cares about dragging us away from the Lord. So when you're frustrated, and I was yesterday, I'm admitting it publicly, when you're frustrated, you have to look at it and say, what is the devil trying to do here? What is he trying to exploit? And what do I not need to yield ground on? Because he wants to take ground. He wants to wear me down. And when things get worse, then he starts to to push our tiredness and push our anger and make us impatient and build resentment and divide relationships because that's just extra fun for him. I got Rhodes all irritated. Now let's get him angry at his kids. Now let's get him frustrated with his wife. Now let's get him uh, annoyed with responsibility. Now let's, let's push every button on Rhodes today. 
And if my heart and your heart is not fully surrendered to the Lord, and we're not completely yielded, and we're not crying out to God saying, God, I'm under attack. Help me right now. I want to walk purely with you. If we don't do that, we're going to get worn down. The enemy will always push self. The Spirit will always call us to be selfless. So we have a choice, and it's determined by who we're serving. So when you look at your reactions, and I look at my reactions to frustration, what control do you see? See, the first question we need to ask is, am I right with the Lord? If you're here this morning, we talked all about it. If you've never confessed your sins, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and said, I can't save myself, I need the Lord, life will always not make sense. You will never have purpose. You'll never have joy. You'll never have hope. Oh, the devil will lie to you and tell you, oh, you're going to be so much happier without God. But, but he's a liar. So is your heart right with him? If you do know the Lord, are you living under the Spirit's control? Are you filled with the Spirit? The Bible says be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, I know he indwells you and you prayed to receive Christ and you're living for him. He indwells you. That's a given. But are you filled with him? Are you full of him or full of self? Is the glass half empty spiritually or is it half full? But it's not to the top. It's not overflowing. The joy of the Lord doesn't overflow out of your life. You're constantly frustrated, constantly annoyed, constantly away from the Lord. There's not fruit showing. The fruit isn't abundant on the tree. There's an apple here and a pear here and an orange here, but, but that's about it. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying, look, we've got to evaluate, is there fruit out of my life? And if our heart's not aligned with him, we're not going to deal with frustration very well. And then last question. Once we're right with the Lord, God gives us opportunities and commands. Call on me. When you're frustrated, when you're angry, oh, Lord, help me on this. The first response would be, God, I'm not doing well. Help me. Change my heart, change my mind, get me out of the selfish mindset. Lord, I want to honor you. I shouldn't honk at that person. They're doing the wrong thing, and they're breaking the law, and they're frustrating me, but I'm just going to pull around them, and I'm not going to glare at them as I go by. I'm just going to go on my way, and I'm going to recognize it's not all about me. I don't know what's going on in their life. So, Lord, help me. And recognize the power of yourself. Rather than yielding to it, repent of it, put it off. There's a reason why the Bible says deny yourself daily. We don't have to choose to gratify ourselves. You know what? God has given us the power. Come on, this is true. God has given us the power to overcome self. So many people live in bondage. We prayed about it in prayer band. So many people live in bondage. I just can't break free. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ, you are already free. Live in the freedom rather than the bondage. Don't keep going back to the sin and saying, I wonder I don't have any victory in my life. You don't have any victory in your life because you keep going back to the sin. So recognize the power of self and then practice patience. Oh, I hate that one. Practice patience. Lord, give me graciousness. Give me compassion. Give me a love for people when they irritate me. Give me a heart for souls when I see the nation going down the tube. You're slow to anger and you're rich in love. Love's the word there. Love's the key word. We've got to love people differently. Christ gave us an example. You know, 
Jesus was fully human. He's fully God, but he was fully human. And as I said earlier, he didn't go to the cross with frustration and anger and hostility in his heart because we were so lost that he had to go to the cross to save us from our sins. He wasn't irritated when people didn't believe. He wasn't frustrated that the disciples were so self-focused. He wasn't angry that the Pharisees were so militantly hostile against him to the point of killing him. And yet, the Bible says he was in all points tested like we are, yet without sin. So when we're struggling, we need to look at the example of Jesus, who's the author and the finisher Oh, I love that. I need God to finish my faith. The author and the finisher of my faith. The author and the finisher of my sanctification. So that every day we look at the example of Jesus and we say, more like Jesus, more like Jesus, more like Jesus. John 3.30, he must tell me, increase, and I must tell me, decrease. Every day. Lord, today. You must increase, I must decrease. Tomorrow, when I wake up, Lord, you must increase, I must decrease. Tuesday, Lord, you must increase, I must decrease. So that my reaction, my frustrations, my hostility doesn't boil up to the point that I'm ruining everything and then I'm starting to resent you. Lord, may it never be. Lord, sanctify my heart, purify my mind, renew my mind so that when I get frustrated, my first response is, Lord, help me. You're so gracious. I'm going to follow the example of Jesus. Oh, God, help us to do that this week because that will change everything. Let's pray together.